0: Right, well, here we are in this in this amazing passage that uh, Christina's just read for us, and I've got to say I'm glad that you've come back. After week one, I've um, realised this week why a lot of people don't preach in Lamentations. It's it's a step of faith as a preacher that the church will come back the next week. As I said last week, while it's not my aim that this series uh, might to, it's not my aim to set off emotions and feelings, this series may well do so. So, friends. Please uh, be wise, listen to yourself, listen to how you're feeling and if what the word is opening up here triggers something for you to process then please go to a trusted friend, go to a pastor, an elder, uh, someone where you can sit and talk and pray and, and process what's going on. It's important that, um, that we care for each other and you care for yourself um, as themes are opened in this passage, in this uh, in this book. Last week we began the series on Lamentations, this five-week series on the five chapters of Lamentations that was written after Jerusalem was left in ruins in 586 BC, somewhere after that. They were scarred, they were scared, they were injured, they were grief-stricken and traumatised. And if you missed last week, I encourage you to have a listen to that to understand the context of this book and what was going on and what is going on here that God is included in the Bible. And gee, this morning's text is in our face, isn't it? Thanks for reading it, Christine. It uh, just goes on and on and on. It, it might be helpful for us to try to understand that what the people of Jerusalem were going through and therefore what prompted writings of these five poems and the trauma and the grief that they were un- uncovering. Um, there's, a, there's a modern understanding that might help us Um as, as we look through these texts, and I hope um, I'm going to make a little bit of sense in the next few moments as we explore this. In 1969, a Swiss psychiatrist named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross published a book called On Death and Dying. It had a massive impact globally, and she went on to become one of Time magazine's top 100 intellectuals of the 20th century. Kubler-Ross encountered the closeness of death in formative ways in her younger years that set the course for her life's work and research. When she was five, she contracted pneumonia and was in hospital uh, in a very serious condition. The girl in the bed next to her died and as a five-year-old, Elizabeth watched that process. Then when she was 13, she was working in a Swiss laboratory as an assistant Um, And the area they were looking at was uh, refugees from World War II. She later visited one of the Polish concentration camps and it sparked her interest in the power of compassion and resilience of the human spirit. Elizabeth must have been a strong-willed person because she decided that she wanted to become a doctor and her father decided to stop it. His preference was for her to be his secretary. um, But she wanted to become a doctor. And he became quite uh, stubborn about it, and so she left home at the age of 16 to become a doctor. And she supported herself right through her studies as a housemaid. And she became not only a doctor, but a world-famous psychiatrist, first in Zurich and then in the United States. Now, why am I talking about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross when we're studying Lamentations? Because Elizabeth Kubler-Ross studied people who suffered so much and lost so much particularly from the holocaust and she took particular note of people who made it through to the other side and became for want of a better word resilient she observed what those folk who developed resilience in the midst of death and grief went through and she developed it into a theory of five phases that people go through with death and dying and it's now the modern basis of how counselors and psychologists, pastors are trained and understand the death and dying grief and loss process. Now, there have been plenty of modern adaptations from Kubler Ross's work, but this is the basic framework that everything that has come since has, has uh, developed from um, in in, under, in the understanding. So let me walk you through it because you're going to start to see some parallels with Lamentations. There's five stages in her model, and the first, and as I explain them. What strikes me as particularly fascinating is that 2,500 years before she developed this theory, it was already being worked out in the book of Lamentations. Quite incredible that the word of God had this pattern already there. So the first stage she talks about is denial. This is when we first receive some bad news. It's our first response. It's often our natural response to deny what is happening right in front of us. We're overcome with feelings like avoidance and confusion and shock and fear. Many of us have experienced, no doubt, denial when tragedy strikes. Sadly, I can remember a, couple, a colleague talking about two couples, two married couples, who never said goodbye to each other properly when one of the couple was suffering from terminal cancer because they were in denial about what was going on. And they never moved past that stage while their life partner was alive so that they could say goodbye. They rationalised their denial by claiming faith in the favour of God. And this is also very much the scene for Judah before the exile, despite many prophets' warnings, particularly Isaiah. Sadly, Israel had a habit of not listening to God's warnings to them and Israel preferred to walk in denial. Here's an example from Jeremiah 7, another one of the prophets who warned what was coming. From the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets. But they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their ancestors. When you tell them all this, they will not listen to you. When you call them, they will not answer. Therefore say to them, this is the nation that has not obeyed the Lord its God nor responded to correction. Truth has perished. It has vanished from their lips. Clear warning from Jeremiah. Denial. Now by the time Lamentations was written, there was no space left for denial. What we have before us is the true nightmare that was prophesied. And we saw the context of that last week in chapter 1. So denial is... A natural, human, immediate response, but it's not a mature one when presented with evidence. And here in Lamentations 2, we encounter the next stage of grief after denial. Stage 2 is anger. Stage 2 is uh, anger by uh, Kubler-Ross. This is when feelings of frustration and irritation and anxiety and bitterness and rage emerge. And you may have experienced this in your own life, when you have encountered grief and where's this coming from now on the model up on uh, above me if you could go back one step Philip thanks you'll see that um, denial is quite high and then it goes down into a dip and anger is on the way down in that in that graph it reflects one's mood the first feelings of denial are almost euphoric because they're high and they're denying what is before you but now the graph is starting to sink as we go through anger. Lamentations 2.5 um, that Christine read this morning reflects this bitter anger emerging from the poet in Lamentations. The Lord is like an enemy. He swallowed up Israel. He swallowed up all her palaces and destroyed her strongholds. He's multiplied mourning and lamentation for daughter Judah. In fact, there are lots of passages in the Old Testament where God is presented as angry. And if you understand anger as part of grief, that will help explain why a jealous and loving God might demonstrate anger for a people who have gone off the rails. God is grieving for where his people are at. It is a natural response. I can remember hearing a story from someone, um, a colleague um, who who was doing some counselling with a young lady. And she was seeking help about uncontrollable anger that surfaced in the pettiest of circumstances. <clears throat> she couldn't understand and she was seeking counsel for why she would just fly off the handle with anger. So it just happened in this particular session that my colleague was involved in that her leg was in a plaster cast. And the, the counsellor asked how it happened, just out of courtesy when someone walks into a room and they've broken their leg, it's a natural thing to ask. And as it turned out, in one of her moments of anger and rage had in fact caused her to kick the fridge so hard she broke her leg. The counsellor zoned in and asked very pertinently, well, what was on your mind when you kicked the fridge? What made you so angry? And the woman replied that she was actually annoyed with something that her father had said, and that was on her mind. So she kicked the fridge, and as it turned out, It was her relationship with her father that was at the heart of the matter and the cause of the flare-up of her anger each time. She hadn't realised that. The young woman needed to do some deep work and as she did that, not only did her leg heal but her anger decreased markedly and she developed a healthier relationship with her father. Anger is often saying something to us and we're best to pay attention to it. Stage two. Stage three, as we go through this grief cycle, is we start to bargain. See, it's right at the bottom of the dip in the depression. It's the lowest part in the cycle. It's when the grieving gets totally desperate. This is the point where people struggle to find meaning in what's going on, and so they do deals with themselves and deals with God. Lord, if you heal X, then I'll become a missionary. That sort of deal. Or they reach out to others in unhealthy or healthy ways to start to tell their story. And which is why listening to people in grief and trauma's story is so important. It helps them move through important stages in their own grief. That's, that's stage three, where they start to bargain. You're going to find plenty of that in Lamentations. And stage four, this is depression. Now, what's strange about the graph is we've gone down to bargaining and depression is going upward. And yet that doesn't sound like a very happy place to be, does it? Well, we need to separate what Kubler-Ross meant by depression from our modern understanding of mental health, which we often call depression. There is some overlap, but not entirely. What she meant was this. Think about it. What is a depression? You think you're driving along the road and you see a pothole in the road. That's a depression. Or you see the road goes down. That's a depression. The dictionary says a depression is a sunken place. And Lamentations is filled with a whole remnant of survivors in their sunkenness who are crying out. What does it mean to depress something? To press down. To depress something is to push it down. The feelings that are associated with this when you press something down are being overwhelmed or helpless or hostile or the desire to flight or escape, which is not an option for these people in Lamentations in Jerusalem. So if you look at Kubler-Ross's diagram, you'll see that in the grief cycle, depression's actually on the way up. You might think that's odd because depression is about being sunken. But sunken as depression is and as much as being overwhelmed and helpless and feeling, feelings of hostility and wanting to run away might make you think that things are bad, the depression that she's described here means that the individual is starting to move towards acceptance. So they're starting to actually move through the cycle and they're no longer denying, bargaining or angry. Here's an example from Lamentations eleven and, 2, 11 and 12. My eyes fail from weeping. I'm in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed, because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where is the bread and wine? As they faint like wounded in the streets of the city, as their lives ebb away in their mother's arms. It's not good, but it's starting to accept the reality of what is before them and we move to her final stage acceptance and as I said stage five is all about um, acceptance but you might also use the word resignation there is no more fight denial anger bargaining depression fade into the past acceptance now comes upon the people as they accept that things have changed and perspective needs to be reset New options can eventually be explored. Perhaps even a new plan can be put in place because moving on becomes accepted or necessary. And this is where we are in lamentations and this is where many people are in their lives when they move through grief and loss. So holding the idea of this grief cycle and the pattern that we must go through and that Kubler-Ross discovered from the Holocaust that people went through in such terror. Holding that grief cycle, I hope you're going to start to see this unfolding as we go through the five poems or the five chapters in Lamentations, as it moves towards acceptance and health, and then the deeper question of where is God in the midst of that, which we will be exploring across these five weeks. Because Lamentations is a poem, it's not meant to be read literally, friends. If you try to read it literally, you'll get tied up in all sorts of knots because verses 1 to 8 represent, in chapter 2, represent God as the enemy of Israel. Of course, God is not their enemy, but such is their plight, that's how he's presented. That's all part of the literature, the literary technique that is used in Lamentations. Verses 1 to 3 says... How the Lord has covered daughter Zion with the cloud of his anger. He's hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of daughter Judah. He has brought her kingdom and its princes to the ground in dishonor. In fierce anger, he's cut off every horn of Israel. He's withdrawn his right hand at the approach of the enemy. He has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire that consumes everything around it. There's plenty of anger here, right? We can see what's going on in the grief cycle. There's plenty of anger and descriptiveness in Lamentations right from the start. What the scene is like and how things feel. This poem is from the heart of a traumatised people who need to be heard in the midst of their plight. Much of the imagery here at the start too comes from the idea of the day of the Lord that the prophets spoke about. That day of anger that Lamentations refers to in verse 1 is borrowing from the idea of the day of the Lord when God will intervene in history with Israel's enemies in battle. Except here... It seems that Israel is the one who's been devastated. The day of the Lord, it's meant to be the other way around. This strategy of placing Israel at God as Israel's enemy continues from verse 1 through verse 8. Let me just finish it in verse 8. as the closing um, stanza. The Lord determined to tear down the wall around daughters Dor- iron. He stretched out a measuring line and did not withhold his hand from destroying. He made ramparts and walls lament. Together, they wasted away. Sometimes we go through pain and trauma and we feel like God is against us and God is in it. It could be the announcement of bad news about the health diagnosis for yourself or a loved one. It could be a run of bad luck through successive hard knocks. It might be by comparing your life with someone else's. Their life looks idyllic. It never is, by the way. It might just be how you feel about yourself. The story of Job explores this well with the guilt that his friends dump on him. Proverbs has lots of wisdom about how life can work out. But Lamentations teaches us in this section that bad stuff, really bad stuff, happens And you don't have to rationalize how it came to be. You can accept it, that it is, and walk in the mystery and fog of the grief or loss or tragedy. Sometimes we lose the map and don't know where we are. Sometimes we are not so certain. And Lamentations teaches us that it's okay to feel that. It's part of the cycle. Now hold that feeling of mysterious lostness because we're coming back to that next, next week with Lamentations' most famous three verses, the heart of the book, that reflects a response. You're going to have to come back next week now. At least I have some people here. Lamentations is not going to keep you lost, but it allows you to feel it on the way through as a part of your resilience and recovery. And it's sure here in chapter 2. But it also teaches us another thing in this section. It also teaches us that God is big enough for us to have a hissy fit with him. Have you ever had feelings or anger or denial or depression or whatever else is on the grief cycle and you've thought it and you said, I can't say that to God. I can't possibly express that. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. God's big enough to pour out all your heart and emotion to him and where you're at because he loves you and he's your father. And I can speak as a father of children. They can pour out whatever they want to me about where they're at and I'll take it to help them move through. Now I'm just me, fallen old Andrew. Your heavenly father is your eternal, perfect, loving father, the creator of the world. You can have a hissy fit. You can dump it all on him. He's big enough. And he's loving enough, friend. In fact, he would prefer that. And that's what's the whole idea in confession, of pouring out your wrongs. But it goes further than that. It's confessing everything and pouring it out because you're much better when you get it out of your system to God. God can handle a hissy fit, friend. He can handle a tantrum. He's big enough for us to pour out all of our emotional baggage and confusion, including anger as we process devastation. So too with our text. The poet has poured out all of their anger in verses 1 to 8 and eventually, metaphorically, collapses into a pile of tears. Ever seen a child do that? Seen some adults do it too. But you go through the whole emotion till you've poured it all out and you just turn into a pile of rubble on the ground in sobbing. Verse 11, my eyes fail from weeping. I'm in torment within. That's exactly what's happening for Israel. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed, because my children and infants faint in the streets of the city. The poet's eyes fail from so much crying. But then he also describes how his situation is inconsolable. Verse 13, what can I say for you? With what can I compare you, daughter Jerusalem? To what can I liken you that I may comfort you, virgin daughter Zion? Your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? A wound as deep as the sea. Who can heal Israel's devastation? Well, the next three verses explore the three possible candidates who might just have a chance of healing Israel's devastation. Verse 14 argues it's certainly not the prophets. Verse 14 says, The visions of your prophets were false and worthless. They did not expose your sin to ward off your captivity. The prophecies they gave you were false and misleading. Now let's just pause here for a moment on the way through because the prophets that the writer is speaking about are not the famous ones like Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah. And not the minor prophets either. They're ones who had slightly shorter books or less things to say, or just as powerful. Hosea, Amos, Micah, onwards. The prophets being referred to here are the useless prophets that said what people's itching ears wanted to hear before the sacking of Jerusalem. Religious leaders who spoke easy words that were not God's word provided things that people wanted to hear that weren't what God was saying. They're the religious leaders these days that want people to hear rather than what the Bible says, what the people just want to hear. Same problems 2,500 years ago. They preached a different message to the prophets who we read in the Testament that I've just referred to. So the first reflection is who can help Israel in her devastation? It's not those prophets who just tell you what you want to hear. This is what Isaiah was referring to in chapter 44, when Isaiah referred about these false prophets. Who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners? Who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense? Who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers? So Lamentations says, not those prophets. In verse 15, who's the next category? The poet says, That the people who pass by Jerusalem, who might have goods, who might be traders, who might be other armies, it's not them either. Verse 15: All who pass your by all who pass your way clap their hands at you. They scoff and shake their heads at Daughter Jerusalem. This is the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth. Ends in a question mark. It's not them. In verse 16, the poet then observes that Israel's enemies are of no help either. Or your enemies open their mouths wide against you. They scoff and gnash their teeth and say, we've swallowed her up. This is the day we have waited for. We have lived to see it as they lick their lips. So the prophets, the passerbyers, and even Israel's enemies are of no help. So who can Zion turn to? Is there anyone who can help? What can they do? The poet concludes that there is no one else to turn to but the Lord in verses 17 to 19. The Lord has done what he planned. He has fulfilled his word. He has decreed long ago. He has overthrown you without pity. He has let the enemy gloat over you. He has exalted the horn of your foes. The hearts of your people cry out to the Lord. The walls of daughter's Zion. let your tears flow like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief, your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night as the watches of the night begin. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint from hunger and every street corner. The poet concludes that all that they are left with, their only source of hope, is God. Israel has gone its own way and lost so much, and slowly she is coming to understand through her grief and loss cycle that all that she has lost and all of her life and anything that is of value is in the Lord. All the things that she got meaning from are now useless and valueless. Riches, status, image, popularity, social media hits, the acclaim of culture, all meaningless, all leveled, all offering nothing in the state of their grief and loss. All that matters really, indeed all there is, is the Lord of heaven and earth. C.S. Lewis once defined hope as a continual looking forward to the eternal world. Thomas A. Kempis wrote in The Imitation of Christ, In thee, therefore, Lord, I put all my hope. For many friends shall not profit, nor strong helpers be able to succor, nor prudent counsellors give a useful answer, nor the books of the learned console, Not any precious substance to deliver, nor any secret and beautiful place to give shelter, if thou thyself do not assist, help, strengthen, comfort, instruct, keep in safety. To hope in thee above all things is the strongest solace of thy servants. G.F. Watts painted this famous painting that's housed in the Tate Gallery in London. It's a picture of a poor woman sitting on top of the world. Her eyes are bandaged so she cannot see ahead. In her hands is a broken harp. All but one string has snapped. The broken strings represent her shattered expectations and her bitter disappointments. The one last string left after everything else is gone, is the string of hope. She strikes at that string and a glorious melody begins to float out over the world and fills her dark sky with stars. Here in this painting is the great truth. Even when all seems lost, when there is a small slither of hope, we can go on. Lamentations' second poem has reached that point and turned back to God. So should we. Let me pray. Loving God, we thank you for the reminder from this wonderful image of this blindfolded, broken, poor woman on top of the globe with only one thing left, which is hope. Like the... The people of Judah here in the levelled rubble of Jerusalem. And like sometimes us too in our own lives, when we look in so many different directions for hope and purpose and meaning and they come up empty, let us turn to you, Lord. Let us seek our hope in you, the maker of heaven and earth the one stable true loving creator who can take all of our burdens and all of our pain and still be there standing permanently lovingly with hope our hope is in you lord amen thank you andrew will you stand